This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, author and integrative health pioneer Deepak Chopra shares insights from his latest book and explores practical ways to experience higher consciousness, transformation, and healing. This event was recorded on February 15, 2018, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here with all of you. Does everyone know how they got here? (laughs) Do you? Let me show you. So, congratulations. (laughs) You made it. At the moment of uh, conception, you have 25,000 genes. Not these genes, but genes that ultimately end up as a human body-mind. A gene is defined as a stretch of DNA that codes for a protein. So we start out as a protein molecule. 25,000 genes, half from your father, half from your mother. And uh, as I said, a gene is a stretch of DNA that codes for a protein. DNA stands for deoxyribonucleic acid, and there are four chemical bases. They're usually abbreviated as A, T, C, and G. So A, T, C, G are the alphabet of life. Right now, I'm speaking in English, and I'm using 26 letters, but life uses only four letters. Only four letters, all of life. Life of a mosquito, or a worm, or a whale, or a dolphin, or a human being. Just those four letters. Think of uh, DNA as the letters, and genes as the word that becomes the flesh. So your body is a story. And as we'll see, it's the story of the total universe. About 65% of your genes are the same as a banana. 70% of your genes are the same as a mouse. Almost 99% of your genes are the same as a monkey, as a chimpanzee. Little less than 99%. And the reason I'm sharing this with you is there's a continuity of life, a continuity of what we might call the chain of being since the beginning of life, which began on our planet about 2.8 billion years ago. The first organisms were, are known as chemolithoautotrophic hyperthermophiles. Chemo means, means chemicals, autotrophic, they knew how to multiply and reproduce hyperthermophiles because they lived in the rims of volcanoes 2.8 billion years ago. And since then, there's a chain of existence, what we call being, that uh, has not been broken. Not one missing link in that uh, chain of evolution. If there was even one break, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So I just mentioned that the letters of life are A, T, C, and G, which stands for adenine, guanine, cytosine, thymine. But basically, those chemicals are made of atoms. Where did the atoms come from? The atoms were forged in the crucible of burning stars, known as supernova. So right now, according to the latest astrobiology, 
Astrobiology is a new discipline in science. Astro means stars. Biology means looking at life in exoplanets that exist outside our solar system. But right now, based on you know calculations of biosphere and things like that, um, it is believed, current science holds, that there are two trillion galaxies. Two trillion galaxies. We live in the Milky Way galaxy, which has 100 billion stars. Right next door to us is Andromeda, which has another 100 billion stars. And then Virgo, on and on, think two trillion. According to the same scientists, current science, there are 700 sextillion stars, two trillion galaxies, 700 sextillion stars. Does anyone know how to write that? And there are uncountable trillions of planets. In fact, right now, according again to calculations and the likelihood of biospheres, biosphere is what we are part of right now, there are probably 60 billion, 60 billion habitable planets in our own, in our own galaxy, in the Milky Way galaxy. So why am I sharing this with you? Well, it's very likely that the carbon in your fingernails, the oxygen going to your brain right now so you can listen to this lecture, and the elements in your body, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, these are 96% of all the atoms in our body. So these atoms that are right now in your body have come from different galaxies. It took the whole universe so you could be here tonight for my lecture. <laughs> 13.8 billion years of cosmic evolution. 13.8 billion years of cosmic evolution. And everything had to be precise to a decimal point. You know, what physicists talk about today are universal constants like gravity, electromagnetic activity, the strong and weak interactions, subatomic forces. If, if the ratio of these to each other had been off by a decimal point, again, we wouldn't be here tonight. So what is that that's organizing itself into you, me, and all this? What is that? In this book, we call it the self. It's the self. It's an interesting word, but I'll explore it a little bit with you in a moment. And when we say the healing self, the word healing is actually the same as the word holy. The word holy, the word healing, the word wholeness, the word health, they all come from the same root. Healing is the return of the memory of wholeness, who we really are. And who we really are is an activity of the total universe. The total universe. With all those trillions of planets and six, 700 sextillion stars and two trillion galaxies. During the nine months that it takes to make a human baby, during that process that is called embryogenesis, um, your body goes through all the stages of biological evolution. So there's cosmic evolution first, and the, the formation of stars, the formation of atoms, electromagnetic fields, forces. But then there's biological evolution. And during that uh, nine months in the womb, you go through all the phases of uh, biological evolution. So uh, you actually create three brains, a reptilian brain, which is responsible for survival, an emotional brain, which is only found in mammals, by the way, not in reptiles. So mammals are so-called because 
of the word mama, which is the root word for mammary or breast or uh, mother or mata or matrika uh, or mater. And uh, mammals, unlike reptiles, have emotional lives. Reptiles don't have emotional lives. They just have instinctive lives. So you create a limbic or emotional brain. That's the second brain we have. And then finally, there's a cortical brain, which is the bulk of our brain, which is called the intellectual brain, which is responsible for things like um, conscious volition, thought, reflection, uh, introspection, intuition, uh, creativity, higher consciousness, and ultimately transcendence. And uh, a healthy body-mind, and I use the word body-mind as a single word, just like we use space-time as a single word now, mass-energy, wave-particle, body-mind is one word. There's no place where there's a molecule and not a thought. Uh, mind, body are one unit, just like space-time, mass-energy, wave-particle. So a healthy healthy body-mind is the integration of these three brains, the instinctive brain, the emotional brain, and the intellectual brain. Now, on the way out, as you saw the baby coming out through the birth canal, there's something very interesting happens, and the baby inhales, swallows, and is covered by the vaginal secretions of its mother. So at this point, there's a second inoculation of genes. You got 25,000 genes from your parents, but now you receive 2 million to 20 million extra genes. And these are microbial genes. These are bacteria, which we now call the microbiome. So 99% of the genes in your body right now are microbial genes. Only 1% of your genes are the ones you got from your parents. Now, we didn't know this even 10 years ago, by the way. This is all brand new information. That technically speaking, you are a few human cells holding on to a bacterial colony. <laughs> what are these microbial genes? These are the genes in the soil. And the genes in the soil are bacteria, but also in plants, in other animals. They're all uh, part of our ecosystem. How many of you have either a dog or a cat at home? Okay, you're sharing their microbial genes. You know, every time you touch them, every time you have intimate contact with them, you share. And also, we share genes with each other. You know, when we shake hands, or when I open the doorknob and you've opened it at the same door before. So we're all part of an ecosystem of life that has existed for billions of years. Okay, so now you have a second genome that's called the microbiome. And the first genome was the 25,000 genes that you got from your parents. Now something very interesting happens. A baby has no language. Language comes later. So what is a baby? A baby is a bundle of awareness. That's it. And what is it experiencing? It's experiencing uh, what you and I would call sounds, textures, sensations, images, and um, essentially the five senses. Taste, smell, sound, form, color, vision, and sensation. But now what happens is the baby is programmed into what we call thought. So the baby doesn't know that this is a shoe. All it sees is a color, a shape, a form. Then this language creates a construct. That's a shoe. This is a hand. This is a body. And then 
it starts to experience thought. So what is thought? Thought is the human interpretation of sensory experience. That's all it is. And then it starts to get feelings, you know. You know, baby will pick up a shoe and taste it and smell it and try to eat it or play with it, like it, dislike it, throw it away. But now it gets a construct. That's a shoe, this is your hand, this is the body, that's the world. And so this starts to create thoughts and feelings and ultimately what we call mental experiences. Thoughts, feelings, emotions, memories, desires, imagination. And this complexity of both what we now call an internal life, a mental life, and an external life, which is the world, other people, environment, the cosmos, nature, and everything else that we call experience, this starts to create a third structure in our body. And that third structure is called the epigenome. Epi means above. So the epigenome is a sheath of proteins that is above the genes. And what is the epigenome a result of? It is a result of everything that you can call an experience. The world, the environment, thoughts, feelings, emotions, everything else. And the epigenome, of course, is built by the genes themselves, you know, because genes are the basic units of what we call units of heredity and also of life, of proteins, and proteins are enzymes. They get converted into carbohydrates and fats and ultimately this whole body. So what is this body? This body is an activity, I shouldn't even say this body, this body-mind is an activity of the total universe that hasn't stopped since the beginning of time. Your body is not a thing, even though we call it a thing. It's an activity. Your body is not a noun. Your body-mind is not a noun. It's a verb. It's an activity. And that hasn't stopped at all. Right now, the body-mind you're using to listen to my lecture is not the body-mind you came in with a little while ago. Even with one breath that you breathe in, you breathe in 10 to the power of 22 atoms. That's one followed by 22 zeros that comes from everywhere and ends up as your heart cells and your brain cells and kidney cells. With every breath that you breathe out, you breathe out again 10 to the power of 22 atoms. So at the atomic level, you're literally breathing out bits and pieces of your heart and kidney and brain tissue. And technically speaking, we're all intimately sharing our organs with each other right this moment. This is one of the great insights of the wisdom traditions, that there's no such thing as a separate self. The separate self is a socially induced hallucination. Right this moment, you have in your body at least a million atoms that were once in the body of Moses or Jesus or Buddha or anyone else you want to think about, including Mr. Trump. <laughs> in just the last three weeks, a quadrillion atoms. In just the last three weeks, a quadrillion atoms, which is one followed by 15 zeros, have gone through your body that have gone through the body of every other living species on this planet. So think of a tree in Africa, think of a peasant in China, think of a taxi driver in Calcutta, and uh, you have stuff in your body that was there three weeks ago. In less than one year, we recycle 98% of all the atoms in our body. So at the atomic molecular level, you have a new stomach uh, lining every five days, a new liver every six weeks a new skeleton every three months. And your DNA, which I just told you, holds the memories of millions of years of evolutionary time. The actual raw material of the DNA, the atoms, the carbon, the hydrogen, the oxygen, it comes and goes every six weeks like migratory birds. So if you think you are your physical body, you have a problem. Which one are you 
talking about. <laughs> this is my year 2018 model. <laughs> and the last time I came to this city, I brought the same suitcase, but not the same body. Because my suitcase has a longer shelf life than this, this activity, which is basically recycled earth, water, and air. So, the healing self, the self is that awareness in which the activity of the universe is happening and we are calling it me and the other. We're calling it, this is me, but if you really think about it, this is just an activity. Which me? You were once a baby, before that you were a fetus, before that you were a sperm and an egg, before that you were DNA, before that you were atoms, before that you were hydrogen and helium being fused in a, in, in a supernova. It's a very interesting concept, I. It's the most common thing in any language, I. I went to the movies, I had Chinese food, I'm in San Francisco, and nobody ever answers the question, what or who is this entity that we call I? It's certainly not the body-mind, because the body-mind you're using right now to listen to my lecture didn't exist even a year ago. So when I look at you, and you look at me, we're taking a photo. Every perceptual experience is a still shot. And by the time you, I look at you, you're not even the same person at any level. At any level. So the healing self. Self is the awareness in which the cosmos is recycling as this body-mind. The fashion in medicine and biology has been something called reductionism. It's still what is taught in medical schools and elsewhere. Reductionism means that you reduce the body or anything to its parts. And then you try to explain everything, the whole, by looking at the parts. But if you followed me so far, uh, then there are no parts. There's no such thing as a part. A part is a moving activity of the whole. It's a moving activity of the whole. So, let me share with you a few slides that I prepared for tonight. This is a diagram from the book that shows what we would today call the healing system. Okay, so right at the top is your mind, body, and prior to that is consciousness. Consciousness is the source of both that which we call mind and body. I'll go into that in a little while. But so you have consciousness first, then you have mind, body, and then we divide the mind, body into the brain, and then the brain here, this is a very important nerve that the yogis have known about for thousands of years. It's called the vagus nerve. It's the tenth cranial nerve. And uh, the word vagus is related to the English word vagabond. Because the vagus nerve comes from your midbrain and then it goes everywhere in the body. It's literally the vagabond nerve. So first it influences your facial expressions. Today we have technologies where you can do a, a, a selfie, or what we call a wealthy, um, and you can correlate the facial expressions with heart rate variability, with immune function, with microbiome activity. Your face is a pretty good readout of what's happening in your whole body. So the vagus nerve influences facial expression. It influences the movement of eyes. And, you know, you can look at a person's eyes and say, 
this is a happy person, unhappy, depressed, whatever. And then the, it's the vagus nerve that's giving the message. And that influences, influences the tone of your voice. When people are upset, angry, they have a different tone. If they're stressed, they have a different tone. If they fall in love, then they have a different tone. So the vagus nerve does that. And then it goes into the heart, influences heart rate variability, which is the most precise measurement of whether a person is relaxed, flexible, adaptable, or stressed. And then it goes right through the diaphragm into the organs of the body where it regulates the activity of every organ in the body. And then it goes through the intestine and uh, regulates the activity of the microbiome, which is your second genome. So here is the vagus nerve. It's coming. It's influencing the heart, like facial expressions, etc. The organs in the body, ultimately the gut microbiome. And the gut microbiome makes uh, these chemicals which are the same as the brain chemicals like serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin, opiates. There's a new one now called anandamide, which is uh, the peptide for bliss, which some people experience. Let me go back. Uh, okay, so it influences your immune function, your leukocytes, your T cells, B cells, which then feed back into the brain and also make what are called cytokines. And this is all one system. It's all one system. Your endocrine system, your immune system, your brain, what we call the mind, your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, your, um, your um, gut microbiome. It's all one system. By the way, this vague, how many people here do yoga once in a while or regularly? Okay, every time you do yoga, every time you do, say, cat-cow or sun salutation, uh, you're stimulating your vagus nerve. And that is the most powerful thing you can do. You can also stimulate your vagus nerve through breathing pranayam. All the different pranayam techniques, they influence the vagus nerve. That's why yoga has a completely different effect on the body than just movement. Okay, because very specific in self-regulation. Okay, so this is a diagram from the book. And these are the six things that anyone should pay attention to to maximize self-regulation. Self-regulation. Self is the awareness, once again, in which this activity is happening. The awareness in which the activity of what we call mind-body-universe is happening as a unified experience. So these are not necessarily in order of importance. They're all equally important. So sleep here is mentioned as number one. Now in, in the great wisdom traditions of the world, particularly in Vedanta and Shaivism and all the non-dual traditions, sleep is actually your doorway to the unmanifest realm of all possibilities. Sleep is, um, therefore, a spiritual experience. And uh, what happens in sleep is, right now we are, I presume, everybody here is in what we call the waking state. Okay? <laughs> so what is the waking state? Waking state is the excitations of consciousness that produce what we call perceptual activity. Seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, um, sensations, sensations, images, feelings, thoughts, sense perceptions. This is the waking state of consciousness, which is an excited state that localizes consciousness into me and the world. But when we go to sleep at night, then those excitations become finer, and we call that the dream state. So in the dream state also, there is experience. You, you know, there's a character that you call yourself, there are other characters, there are locations, etc. But they're kind of more ephemeral. And then those excitations die down, and then you go into what is called deep sleep. So deep sleep is more fundamental than waking and dreaming. 
deep sleep is non-local. That's why now research is showing that during deep sleep, we remove amyloid from the brain. In fact, one of the best ways to avoid Alzheimer's as you grow old is to have good sleep. Not with drugs, not with alcohol, but natural sleep. I remember when I was a resident, one night I woke up to go to the restroom and I heard my nurse and she was screaming at a patient, Mr. Smith, will you please wake up because I have to give you your sleeping pill. <laughs> so I went up to her and I said, you're waking this poor guy up to give him a sleeping pill. She said, yes, because I know he'll wake up in 15 minutes and then he'll wake me up and then I'll wake you up. I said, no, no, give him the sleeping pill. <laughs> so that's how we were trained. And since then, I discovered that in most hospitals, 90% of prescriptions are for five things. Pain, anxiety, nausea, insomnia, and constipation. If you want to remember, the acronym is PANIC. <laughs> Pain, anxiety, <laughs> nausea, insomnia, and constipation. All of them related to, by the way, inability to adapt and be flexible to life this rigidity that we have of how things should be when we are actually the flow of the universe. So in, in any case, uh, now we know that during sleep, uh, creativity is enhanced, memory is enhanced, and there are techniques called yoga nidra. How many people know about yoga nidra? So there you are. So in yoga nidra, you can uh, awaken the light of awareness even in deep sleep and access higher states of consciousness. Sleep, therefore, you know, when you have a good sleep, you wake up in the morning, you say, I slept like a baby. Because you go to the same place where babies come from, the unmanifest field of infinite possibilities. The second thing over there is meditation and stress management. Now we have work, not only at the Chopra Foundation, but many collaborative institutions in the world that show that meditation, whether it's mantra meditation or what we call reflective meditation or contemplative meditation or mindfulness or awareness of sensory experience or awareness of mental space or awareness of viscera in the organ, what is called interoception, all these meditative states actually influence our biological clock. So the enzyme telomerase, which regulates the length of our chromosomes, uh, in our studies, uh, we were able to show that it went up by 40% in one week of a retreat, uh, which we have twice a year at the center. It's called seduction of spirit. And since then, many other institutions have shown the same thing. So in meditation, your brain changes, and then... Um, your genes get activated, your telomerase level goes up, all the genes that are responsible for self-regulation or what is called homeostasis, they go up. Homeostasis is another word for self-healing. They go up, some go up even 17-fold over baseline. And all the genes that cause um, inflammation, they go down, including the genes that are um, risk factors for heart disease, diabetes, autoimmune illnesses, cancer, you name it, every chronic disease, the genes that cause inflammation go down. We now know that 95% of all chronic illness, the underlying factor is inflammation. So inflammation is actually a protective response. When if, you, if you fall down and you get a bruise, that's inflammation. And the bruise protects you from bleeding to death. If you get an infection, a pneumococcal infection, the body produces the inflammatory response and antibodies and everything to protect you. We're not talking about acute inflammation, which is protective. We're talking about low-grade chronic inflammation, which nobody even knows they have. You know, it's so low-grade that it doesn't cause any symptoms. But now we can measure it through inflammatory markers called cytokines. And we know that only 5% of disease-related gene mutations are fully penetrant. Let me repeat that. Only 5% of disease-related gene mutations are fully penetrant. So I started off by saying, think of DNA as the alphabet, the 
genes as the word, your body as a story. Your body is the story of the universe, literally, not metaphorically. A mutation is like a typo, like a spelling mistake. You know, the, the letters are reversed, or they're upside down, or one letter is missing. So a mutation is a genetic error. There are mutations that cause disease, like cancer, autoimmune illness, diabetes, etc., heart disease. But only 5% of those mutations are fully penetrant, which means they guarantee the disease. If somebody has a Baraka gene for breast cancer, like Angelina Jolie had, she did a double mastectomy because she would have gotten the cancer, 100%. But that's 5% of all cancers. Or actually, according to Rudy, less than 5% of all cancers, less than 5% of all Alzheimer's, less than 5% of any disease is due to these fully penetrant. That's where the current research on CRISPR, gene editing, gene slicing, all of that will pay off. But 95% of those mutations that cause disease have nothing to do with guaranteeing the disease. They're based on how we live our life. Okay. Based on how we feel, how we think, how we even speak, how we behave, uh, the kinds of personal relationships we have, our professional interactions, and our interaction with the entire ecosystem that we call life. So meditation now, of course, has become mainstream, and most people are using it for stress management. But ultimately, the goal of meditation is to get you to the source of thought, which is also the source of perception, which is also the source of all experience. And that source is what we call consciousness or awareness. Meditation, therefore, allows you to be free of human constructs that create a experience of the world, which is not really the real reality. The real reality, as Rumi said, the real reality is behind the curtain. In truth, we are not here. This is our shadow. The body-mind and that which we call the universe is a projection of consciousness, is an excitation of consciousness. So as we get deeper into meditation, then it assumes a whole different uh, importance than just stress management. But nevertheless, meditation decreases inflammation and improves self-healing. Movement, uh, it's now recommended that you should move at least 10,000 steps a day. That's why I'm trying to move right now. <laughs> Still have a few steps to go. Movement, but yoga and pranayama assume new importance with now what we know about the vagus nerve how it influences the microbiome and self-regulation in the body. Emotions. Everybody knows that stress is bad. But what is stress? Stress is, essentially starts with fear. And it's fear of what we call the separate self. You feel disconnected. You feel uh, anxiety, anticipation of something going wrong with with this entity which we call I. But then as fear, the memory of that is reflected as anger. Hostility is not the same thing as anger. Hostility is the desire to get even, which is a human construct again. Animals have consciousness. Animals, if you have a dog and somebody injures that dog, the dog will remember. And if the dog encounters that person five years later, the dog might attack that person. But unlike a human being, it won't plan for five years how to get even. <laughs> so all our, all our world problems right now are memories. They're memories of past grievances, resentments. So fear leads to anger, leads to hostility, leads to resentment, grievance, guilt, shame, depression, and that causes inflammation in the body. 
the opposite of that, love, empathy, compassion, joy, which is our essential state. As a baby is nothing other than joy, other than when it's wet or it's hungry. Um, our essential state is that, love, compassion, empathy, joy, equanimity or peace. So emotions are very important because the limbic brain, your emotional brain, again, I've mentioned the vagus nerve, but the emotional brain also uh, connects with the endocrine system and the immune system and is very much a part of our healing system, emotions. The fourth is nutrition, and nutrition now has become, assumed a lot of importance. I remember even in my early days when I was... Uh, practicing as an internist, uh, people would come to me, patients would come to me and say, you know, I had arthritis, or I had bronchial asthma, or I had this autoimmune illness, and occasionally even they would say I had cancer, and I changed my diet, and now everything is better. The arthritis has gone away, and the asthma has gone away, and my cancer went into a remission. I would say, come on, you know, food is not going to do that because we had no scientific basis. But now we know that actually the first thing that um, food comes into contact with as soon as you eat the food is your microbiome, your second genome, as soon as you eat the food. So if your food contains inflammation, which is all manufactured, refined, processed food uh, that is basically comes from a factory, then, uh, you know, Pesticides, organocytes, these are petroleum products. They're inflammatory products. They're the same things that were used as Agent Orange in the killing fields of Vietnam, and now they're in our food. And so animals are given um, antibiotics, animals are given hormones, animals are given all kinds of chemicals, including estrogens and steroids, and that's going into our food chain. And that's causing inflammation in the microbiome, which is then speaking to the genome and the epigenome and causing inflammation in the whole body. And we now know that within one week of changing your diet to a more organic diet, to a farm-to-table diet, the more diverse your food is in terms of plants. So plant-based diet, which has a diversity of plants, the more diversity of plants, the healthier the microbiome, and it'll change in a week. Now, no two people in this room or no two people in the world have the exact same microbiome. So if I examine the microbiome of a, of a person living in the Congo or in the Brazilian rainforest or in New York City, it'll be quite different than the microbiome you have. And yet we know there are certain common factors that influence the health and well-being of the microbiome. The microbiome responds not only to food, but also to all the other things, stress, sleep, emotions, etc. It's like your genome, which also responds to all these things. Today, there are technologies that can look at a microbiome, a human microbiome. So you take toilet paper and you put a little bit of, uh, you, after you wipe yourself, you can send that by FedEx and get your microbiome analyzed and you can get a very precise reading of what is good for you. We are working with some of these companies I'll share with you in a moment. The sixth thing here is biological rhythms. So, as I said, we are part of the symphony of the universe. Your body has four biological rhythms that now, last year's Nobel Prize, by the way, in medicine went to the people who've discovered what are called biological clocks in the cells of our body. But many wisdom traditions, including Ayurveda, have known about these biological rhythms for thousands of years. So the first biological rhythm is what is called the circadian rhythm. As the earth spins on its own axis, we have that circadian rhythm. If you have jet lag, that's a disruption of circadian rhythm. The second rhythm is the seasonal rhythm, as the earth goes around the sun. So if you get depressed in winter, you fall in love in spring, and birds start to migrate, it's all part of the symphony of the whole universe. 
And then the third rhythm is tidal rhythms, the gravitational effects of the sun and the moon on, on the tides. But we have tides in our body as well because our body fluids are ocean. We came from the ocean, we brought some of it with us. So there are tidal rhythms, there are lunar rhythms, there are circadian rhythms, and we are part of this symphony. You may not be able to hear the music, but your body is dancing to it. You can't hear the tune, but your body is dancing to it. And when you're out of alignment, then you know that you feel unwell. You start feeling out of sync. So how many people have occasionally, <coughs> occasionally walked barefoot on the beach? You feel pretty good, right? and occasionally walked barefoot on just the earth, not on cement, but on earth or on grass, your body starts to heal itself. Why? Because you align with the elements and forces of the planet, which is recycling with you and which is in harmony with the cosmos, the solar system and the galaxies and everything else. So somebody that we know, an electrical engineer, he figured out that if you can take even um, a chair or a mat or a cushion and you're sitting on it and you can connect that with a wire through the grounding wire, you know, every outlet has a grounding wire, you can connect to the earth. You can be anywhere. And these are devices that cost $15, $20. And, you know, if you don't have a chance to walk barefoot on the earth or on the beach, you can still ground yourself. Or by touching a tree, you can ground yourself because the tree goes into the earth. And now we are just, we have some papers in press right now in peer-reviewed journals that are going to be published very soon in the next few weeks that show that grounding will decrease inflammation, jet lag, uh, chronic fatigue, improve sleep, etc. Now having said all this, <coughs> let's say you live the best life possible, you increase your lifespan, and um, you live a long, healthy life. These days, the word health span has become part of the vocabulary. It's not only uh, lifespan, but health span. Health span means that you can uh, live long and healthy without... Uh, unless you have one of those 5% fully penetrant gene mutations, for which also there's great hope with all the, the way we are now looking at the genome. And it's around the corner, you know, gene editing, gene slicing is all around the corner. Next decade, it'll all be there. So that means we can all hope to live long, healthy lives. We can even hope to slow down biological age, and even reverse the biological markers of aging. However, if you live a really long life, that does guarantee extreme old age. And extreme old age, at some point, guarantees infirmity. And infirmity, at some point, guarantees death. So human beings have what is called existential suffering because we have the capacity to look into the future. We have the capacity to also learn from the past. And so the fear of death, which is a human fear, has been the basis of all religious experience and the seeking of all religious and spiritual experience. I said religious experience. I didn't say religion. I, you know, by religion, we usually mean dogma, ideology, constructs, rules. The religious experience is something different, which is common to all religions. The religious experience is, number one, transcendence, which means going to that aspect of existence which is beyond perceptual existence, transcendence. The second is the emergence of platonic values like truth, goodness, beauty, harmony, 
love, compassion, joy, empathy. The notion that the separate self doesn't exist. And finally, the loss of the fear of death. But in the absence of that religious experience, or what we call spiritual experience, human suffering, as described in Eastern wisdom traditions, is a result of these five kleshas. They're called kleshas, causes of human suffering. Not knowing the true nature of reality, which is consciousness, the ground of existence. Grasping and clinging at that which is ungraspable. What do I mean with that? Any and all experience is ungraspable. So, what happened to your childhood? It's gone. What happened to the teenager that you once identified with? It's gone. What happened to yesterday? It's gone. What happened to this morning? It's gone. What happened to the beginning of this lecture? It's gone. What happened to five minutes ago? What happened to a second ago? By the time you look at me, what you look at is gone. By the time you hear the last part of my sentence, the first part is gone. So the great German philosopher, Wittgenstein, he said, we are asleep. Our life is a dream. But once in a while, we wake up enough to know that we are dreaming. There is no experience that can be grasped. This experience can't be grasped. It'll be over in five minutes. Guaranteed. The past cannot be grasped. The future cannot be grasped. And this, what we call now, cannot be grasped. That leads to the third problem here. Fear of impermanence. Because, as I said, there are no nouns. It's all a verb. It's all an activity. It's an ongoing activity. It hasn't stopped for 13.8 billion years. So why would it stop now? That leads to the false construct of the constricted self, which we call ego, which leads to the fear of death. But here's the clue. Death happens to experience, not to the awareness in which experience happens. I'll repeat that. Death happens to an experience, but not to the awareness in which the experience happens. In fact, birth and death are happening eternally. A thought is born, it dies. A perception is born, it dies. An emotion is born, it dies. You try to hold on to it, but it's, you can't hold on to it. So birth and death are the continuum of life. Birth, life is not the opposite of death. Life is the continuum of birth and death. Death is the opposite of birth, and birth is the opposite of death, and they're happening all the time. The most common word, as I said, in any language is I. So if I asked you right now, where are you? You would probably say, I'm here. And if I asked you, where's Deepak? You'd say, over there on the stage. Well, this is another socially programmed hallucination. Because if I go inside you, there's nobody there. You can now look inside a brain, you can look inside the body. You have all these amazing instruments, CAT scans, PET scans. There's no one there. So where is I, the most common word? Where is I? That is, at this moment, I, that which I call I, is experiencing this, is experiencing all this, and this, if I go outside, look at the Milky Way galaxy, 
it is experiencing that too. I is the awareness in which body, mind, and universe are all arising and subsiding. Everything that we call a form, a form, this is a form, this is a form. Everything that we call a form is actually a phenomenon. And the phenomenon is the arising and subsiding of sensations, images, feelings, thoughts, perceptions, eternally in that which is called I. I is not subject to birth and death. When you say, I was a child, you will feel the I was the same when you were a baby, when you were a teenager, now, yesterday, tomorrow. So I is the timeless factor in every time-bound experience. <clears throat> and I is not the body-mind. I is the awareness in which the body-mind, or that which we call the body-mind, because actually it's just a human construct for experience, um, is constantly arising and subsiding. So, you know, normally it would take a few weeks to be grounded in this being, but let me try something with you right now so you can at least have a glimpse of this experience. I'm going to ask you a question, and the answer to the question is yes. Okay? <laughs> so let me ask you the question, and then you can all say yes. And the question is, are you aware? Can you be a little more enthusiastic, please? <laughs> are you aware? Yes. Now, that's it. Now, I'm going to ask you the same question, but this time don't answer it till I raise my hand. Okay? Everybody follow the instruction? I'm going to ask you the same question. Don't answer it till I raise my hand. Are you aware? We'll start again. Okay? Don't answer it till I raise my hand. Are you aware? So, are you aware is a thought. The answer, yes, is a thought. But you're not a thought. Most of your thoughts are recycled, everybody else's thoughts anyway. <laughs> okay. So please don't take ownership of your thoughts. They don't belong to you. So are you aware is a thought? The answer, yes, is a thought. You're not the thought. You're the awareness in which the thought comes, and then it's born, it dies. Similarly, perceptions, born, die. Awareness is the same, always there. That's what we call I. It was there when you were a baby. It was there when you were a teenager. It's there now. And if you become intimate with it, you will know that it is not in time. Only the experience is in time. That's why in the Vedanta, say, that's the self. That's the healing self. Water cannot wet it. Wind cannot dry it. Weapons cannot shatter it. Fire cannot burn it. It's ancient. It's unborn. It is that which we call I. So now I'm going to ask you the same question. But don't answer it at all. Just be aware right now of that which is listening. That which is seeing. That which is aware of the body, that which is aware of the mind, and that which is aware of all this. The question again is, are you aware? Just slip into it. This is who we are. Timeless being, timeless presence, spirit, soul. Whatever word, Ein Sof, Brahman, Atman. As Rumi said, God's language is silence. Everything else is a poor translation. Thank you. Thank you. 
You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.